that. Evangelism. This is the spiritual discipline by which Christians share the message of our Messiah with those who are lost. Not only that, but evangelism, it's also the spiritual discipline that many Christians would rather avoid. Well, with that being the case, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that the church is filled with disciples who have actually been taught to believe that they don't really have to go out and evangelize unbelievers. And the reason why? Well, it's because, well, they never received the gift of evangelism. That's right. Uh, there are many Christians who think that, that evangelism is just not for them because they don't have the gift of evangelism. And, and listen, if this is something that you believe, and if this is a belief that you've embraced, please trust me when I tell you that the Bible doesn't say anything about a gift of evangelism. That's right. There is nothing in the Bible about a spiritual gift of evangelism. Now, I realize that this might be surprising to hear, and the reason why is because uh, this belief is very common uh, in many churches. Many Christians have been taught this, uh, and they've embraced it, and yet I invite you to be a Berean by searching the scriptures to find any mention of a spiritual gift of evangelism. I can tell you right now, it's not there. You won't find it. No, instead, what we find is a, a list of spiritual gifts, spiritual gifts that help us to accomplish the great commission of Christ Jesus, which includes uh, the evangelistic endeavors by which we preach the gospel. And while it's true that the church has, in fact, been built upon a foundation that includes apostles, prophets, and evangelists, well, it's also true that every Christian has been called to accomplish the work of the evangelist so that we might all become believers who are exhorting unbelievers to trust in Jesus Christ. And with this as the goal, well, it's crucial for every Christian to learn how to become exhortative evangelists. And listen, the Bible is actually filled with many, many excellent examples of what it means to be an evangelist. But we're going to spend our time today considering Paul's example. And as we examine Paul's example, which is found here in our text today, we'll begin to see that exhortative evangelism includes truthful assertions. Secondly, we'll learn that exhortative evangelism also includes powerful admonitions. Thirdly and finally, we'll learn that exhortative evangelism includes familial affections. Well, with this as the outline, if you would, let's open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, because it's here in our text today where we find Paul. He's actually reminding his readers about his evangelistic endeavors that occurred there in the Macedonian city of Thessalonica. Now, as you make your way to the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians, well, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that Paul actually began this book by assuring the original recipients about the evidence of their election. Yeah, he assured them about their election, and not only that, but he also reminded them back in chapter 1 about the way that they had received the gospel of grace. Well, now here in the beginning of chapter 2, we actually find Paul. He's now reminding them about the way that he had reached out to them with the gospel of grace. And uh, as we consider the evangelistic example that's found here in our text today, well, it's my prayer that we would all become bold believers who have no problem exhorting unbelievers through evangelistic endeavors. Now, with this as the goal, if you would, let's turn our attention to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 
you would, let's begin reading there at verse 1, because here Paul declares, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. And here in these verses we find Paul, he's reminding his readers about the way that his missions team had been treated back in Philippi. Luke's record of those events, they can actually be found in the book of Acts. There we learn about the day when Paul went to Philippi and ended up casting a demon out of a slave girl who was possessed with a spirit of divination. And in response, an angry mob rose up and, and they uh, you know, chased down Paul and Silas and brought them before the magistrates of the city. And they beat them with many stripes. And then they threw Paul and Silas into the prison. And you know, if you have some time, I encourage you to, to read the rest of Luke's account for homework. You can find this in Acts chapter 16. But for the sake of our study today, I just want to take a moment to point out that Paul was reminding his readers about the way that they had arrived in Thessalonica only after having suffered the beating and the imprisonment that they endured back in Philippi. And while it's true that Paul and Silas had suffered many things there in the Macedonian city of Philippi, it's also true that they weren't about to allow the pain of persecution to prevent them from accomplishing their calling in Christ. In light of his example, I want to consider how Paul preached the gospel there in Thessalonica. If you would, let's back up and begin reading once again here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look with me again at verse 1. Here Paul declares, you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold. We were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's reminding his readers about the way that they proclaimed the gospel of God with boldness. That word bold, which is found in the middle of verse 2, was translated from a Greek word which was used of those who freely speak their mind without any concern for any repercussions. Yeah, uh, the person who is bold will just say whatever's on their mind. And while I realize that there are some of us who already feel like, you know, we're bold enough to just say whatever comes to our mind, well, these are typically the people who need to remember that the voice of a fool is known by as many words. I like the way that James put it in James chapter 1. It's verse 26 where he declares, If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Yeah, the, the Christian who doesn't learn how to bridle their own tongue, the, the Christian who doesn't, who doesn't know how to reel in every word, their religion is useless. And, and you know, I have to confess, this, this hurts. This hurt me when I studied it. It hurts me to say it a second time this morning. And I have no doubt that this is painful for many of us who have the gift of gab. You know, many of us who feel the boldness to just say whatever's on our hearts. Listen, we, we have to be careful with that. We have to be careful when we feel like we can just boldly say whatever comes to mind. Because, you know, a, a lot of the things, if not most of those things that come to mind, didn't come from God. That leaves you with two options, right? Our flesh or the devil. <laughs> it's one or the other. So we need to learn how to reel it in for those of us who are bold. And yet it's crucial for every Christian to, to realize that the, 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 the Lord is calling us to speak boldly. 
The outspoken Christian who has that natural ability to speak freely must learn how to bridle our tongues so that we might avoid saying those sinful things that are easily spoken. And I like the way that King Solomon put it in Proverbs chapter 10. It's verse 19 where he says this, In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. And so to be wise, I'm just going to go ahead and stop talking right now. No, but seriously, you know, we should, those of us who are bold to speak freely, uh, we ought to, you know, put a bridle on that tongue and make sure that we're saying things that are pleasing to the Lord. And yet at the same time, again, Christians, we've been called to proclaim the gospel with boldness. And so we shouldn't hesitate to be bold in our presentation of the gospel. As we consider this this, uh, concept of boldness, it'll help you to know that the Greek word rendered boldness there in verse 2 It not only speaks of the courage that allows us to speak freely, but the same Greek word was also used of the confidence and the assurance that we have when we're certain about the things that we're saying. When we know we know what we're talking about, there's a boldness. There's a confidence. There's an assurance. We know what we're talking about, and so we can speak authoritatively. Well, that's how it ought to be when it comes to the preaching of the gospel. When it comes to our evangelistic endeavors, every Christian should have this sort of confident assurance that the gospel message of our Messiah is most certainly true. Please trust me when I tell you that the gospel message has been confirmed with many infallible proofs. This includes the overwhelming evidence of fulfilled prophecy. You know, the statistics that are associated with the fulfilled prophecies of the scriptures help us to know without a shadow of a doubt that the Bible itself must have come from the mind uh, of an infinite uh, source who sits outside of time and space. That's just statistical evidence based on the fulfillment of prophecy. Not only that, but listen, the first century saints, they were willing to die for this message. Now, how many people do you know Uh, are willing to go and suffer and die for something that they know is a lie. The first century saints, they died for this message, and they would have known whether the resurrection of Jesus Christ was true or not. They claimed to be eyewitnesses, and then they went and died for that message. Now, that is pretty substantial evidence when it comes to uh, our confidence in preaching the gospel message. We know that Paul himself was willing to suffer from city to city, because that's exactly what happened. If you, if you read uh, Luke's account of Paul's life, what you find is a man going from city to city, preaching the same message, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and salvation in his name. And in each city, he was persecuted and beaten and thrown in prison, and he would just move on to the next city and, and do it all over again. Why would a person do that unless they themselves were confident and certain of the things that they were talking about? And in light light of Paul's example, well, we too should become those bold believers who are confident in our conviction as we proclaim the truth of the gospel because we have this testimony from those first century saints who are willing to die for this message. At the same time, I also realize that there are many of us who simply struggle with boldness. Some of us are shy. Some of us aren't that confident in our speaking. And if this sounds like your situation, I just want to assure you that you're not alone. You're actually in very good company. As a matter of fact, Moses was a man who lacked confidence in his calling. 
Remember, God called Moses to go and stand before the Pharaoh, the, the, the you know, most powerful leader in the world at that period of time. And, and Moses was supposed to you know, tell the Pharaoh to, to let the Hebrews free. And, and, and Moses started making excuses. He started making excuses because he was slow of speech. He had some sort of speech impediment, which some say may have been a stutter. Maybe it was something else. We can't say for sure. But he himself said that he had a slow tongue and he was slow to speak. And God said, yeah, so what? What does that have to do with what I'm calling you to do? Now go do it. Paul himself was a man who also struggled with being bold for one reason or another. And it's for this reason that he actually asked the Christians in Ephesus to pray for him so that he might be a bold believer. As a matter of fact, it's in Ephesians chapter 6 where Paul asks for these prayers by declaring that, uh, and he says that, that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now consider that prayer request for a moment. It seems to me here that Paul may have been struggling with boldness. And, and, you know, for good reason. I mean, imagine for a moment that every place you go, you preach this message about, about our Messiah, and then you get beaten and thrown into prison. And, you know, after a few cities, you might start thinking, you know, maybe... Maybe I won't say these things in the next city, you know. Maybe I won't be so bold to, to draw this kind of attention. Paul, though... He didn't shirk his responsibility. He knew that he needed to present the truth of the gospel with all boldness. And yet he also realized that this kind of courage can't just be conjured up with the limited power of our fallen flesh. Christian, listen, the boldness of the believer must come from the Holy Spirit of God. We need the Holy Spirit to give us this boldness so that we can proclaim the gospel of grace with the courage of Christ Jesus. This was precisely the point that Paul was making there in the second half of verse 2. If you would, let's look again. 1 Thessalonians 2, there in the middle of verse 2, Paul declares, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. We were bold, not in ourselves. Paul wasn't saying, hey, I'm bold because look at how awesome I am. No, no, no. He says, we were bold in our God. In other words, their boldness came from God who was giving them the courage that they needed so that they could go and declare the good news there in Thessalonica, knowing that the message of the Messiah was going to cause great conflict. And it did. Paul already knew that the gospel of God was going to cause conflict there in Thessalonica. And how did he know this? Because it caused conflict in Philippi and it caused conflict in every other place that he had been before. He knew how it went down. And while this may have provided him with reason to not be bold, he simply prayed for boldness. And rather than simply remaining silent in order to avoid all of the controversy and conflict, Paul accepted the outcome of his calling by boldly asserting the truth of the gospel message. As we consider Paul's example of evangelism, I can't help but to wonder... How many of us are failing to engage in exhortative evangelism because we just rather avoid the conflict? How many of us are, are refraining from evangelism because we just don't want to deal with the controversy at work? We just don't want to deal with the conflict at home. We, do, we just don't want to deal with those who are going to get triggered and upset and argue with us. And we would just rather just not deal with conflict altogether. 
How many born-again believers in the church today are unwilling to share their faith with an unbeliever because they just rather not deal with these controversies and conflicts that arise when we present Christ and him crucified? Sadly, the most recent research, uh, it, it doesn't look good for the church. And one reason why is because the church here in America is filled with those who are opposed to evangelistic endeavors. You know, according to a recent poll published by the Barna Research Group, young adults in the church today are unsure about the actual practice of evangelism. They're, they're, they have a question about the practice itself. As a matter of fact, almost half of millennials, it's 47% to be clear, almost half of millennials who identify as Christian are in agreement that it's actually wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone from a different faith in the hopes that they might leave their faith and become a born-again believer. 47% of millennials in the church today say it's wrong to engage in these evangelistic endeavors. So rather than boldly proclaiming the gospel of grace so that unbelievers might be saved, you know, almost half of millennials in the church today would rather just live and let live. They, they would just rather just avoid the conflicts and the controversy caused by evangelistic endeavors. Now, if you share this same point of view, I encourage you to realize that the Lord has literally called every Christian to preach the gospel. That's right. The Lord has called every Christian to preach the gospel. It's in Mark chapter 16, verse 15. We covered it recently. There Jesus declares, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every, Christ, uh, to every creature if you have the gift of evangelism. Oh, no. No, it doesn't. It doesn't say that last part. He doesn't say, if you have the gift of evangelism, then go preach. He says, go. He's talking to all of his disciples, and he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Every born-again believer has been called to boldly proclaim the gospel message of our Messiah. And in light of Paul's example, well, we ought to be engaging in evangelistic endeavors by exhorting every unbeliever to trust in Jesus Christ as we boldly assert the truth of God's word. That's right. We are to boldly assert the truth of this message. Well, I have no doubt that our message will trigger those who are easily offended because let's face it, that's just about everybody today. Everyone is so easily offended. And so Christians just go, well, I don't want to offend anybody. It's not Christ-like to offend anybody. Have you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Because Jesus offended almost everyone that he talked to. We haven't been called to avoid offense. We, we, should, we should be Christians who try not to be offensive. But yet we've been called to boldly assert the truth of God's word, even if it triggers those who are easily offended. With that being the case, you know, we should go out in the example of Paul, following in his footsteps as we uh, present with all boldness the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And this brings us to our second point, because listen, while it's true that exhortative evangelism then includes truthful assertions 
as we boldly proclaim the gospel of grace, it's also true that exhortative evangelism will also include powerful admonitions. And to explain what I mean by this, let's turn our attention now back to Paul's example of evangelism. It's found here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you will, let's pick up our study beginning at verse 3, because here Paul declares, For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit, but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. And here in these verses we find Paul, he's referring to the exhortations that he presented while he was there in Thessalonica. And for the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that the word exhortation, which is found there in verse 3, it's translated from a Greek word which speaks of the encouragements of those who present a persuasive discourse. And you better believe that Paul was presenting a persuasive discourse as he shared the evidence for the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The same word translated exhortation, well, it can also be rendered admonitions of authoritative counsel. Yeah, that's what Paul was doing. He was admonishing people with authoritative counsel to trust in Jesus Christ. And in light of this concept, we can be sure here that Paul was not only presenting the gospel with persuasive proof, but he was also admonishing these people to consider their sins, to to think about the sins that they're guilty of in light of the law of the Lord so that they might recognize their need for salvation. At the same time, we must not fail to notice what Paul wrote There in verse 3 again, it's there where he reminds his readers by writing, Our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. Now the word error here, it's translated from a Greek word which could could also be rendered here deception or delusion. He's saying, our exhortation, when we admonished you, it wasn't based on deception. It wasn't based on delusion. The word uncleanness there is translated from a Greek word which was used to describe those with impure motives. And the word deceit was translated from a Greek word which was used of those who engage in subtle and sly schemes. To sum all of this up with simplicity, Paul was helping the original recipients of this epistle to remember that the persuasive admonitions that he presented to them, they were based on truthful claims, pure motives, and genuine sincerity. Think about that for a moment. He's saying, when I admonished you, when I challenged you about your sins, when I encouraged you to trust in Jesus Christ, all of this was based on truthful claims, pure motives, and genuine sincerity. In light of his example, listen, every believer will do well to make sure that our evangelistic exhortations include persuasive admonitions that are based on truthful claims, pure motives, and genuine sincerity. The reason I say this is because, listen, there are those who engage in evangelism for all the wrong reasons. You know, some have the wrong motives because they just love to argue. Yeah, there are some in the church today who just love getting into arguments. They're spoiling for an argument. And so, you know, as soon as they find someone online that they disagree with, it's just like they just just jump right into the middle of it. And it's not because they care for the soul of the person that they're arguing with. No, they just want to win an argument. Others preach Christ from selfish ambition without a sincere desire to see people get saved. 
With that being the case, we need to make sure that we're following in the footsteps of Paul by making sure that our evangelistic admonitions are based on truthful claims, pure motives, and genuine sincerity. And with this as the goal, we should take a moment to consider the conviction which was actually motivating Paul. And with that, I want to look again here, beginning at verse 3. Here again, Paul declares, For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit, but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's helping his audience to realize that the evangelistic exhortations that he presented there in Thessalonica, they were motivated by the fact that that this message had been entrusted to them. That God had entrusted the message of our Messiah to those that he sent on this mission. And he took this very seriously. Just to be clear, it'll help us to know that the Greek word, which is here rendered entrusted, it's used of the conviction and trust to which a man is impelled or compelled by a certain inner and higher prerogative or a law that's found within the soul that leads you to want to do right by God. I like the way that the scholars who created the New Living Translation render verse 4. Here's how they put it. We speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to please God, not people. He alone examines the motives of our hearts. That's right. Paul here is letting us know that he was motivated by the desire to please the one who had called him and entrusted him to preach the gospel. He wanted to please God. And knowing that the Lord is able to see the motives that fill our hearts, I have no doubt that Paul was an evangelist who was constantly examining his own heart. In an attempt to please God, I believe that Paul constantly checked his own heart in order to make sure that his motivations for preaching the message was pure and sincere. In this way, Paul was compelled by this conviction to please the Lord. You know, there are Christians who uh, make decisions based on a desire to please people. And people pleasers will constantly do things that just are, are for the wrong reasons, the wrong motives. Rather than trying to be people pleasers who are always trying to, you know, please the people around us. Listen, if we would simply please the Lord, if we would have a motivation that is, I want to please God. And then from those decisions, do what God is calling us to do. You know, sometimes that's not going to be pleasing to the people around us. There will be times when in order to please God, we have to upset the people around us. Yeah, that's just the way it is. And while I would rather be pleasing to the people around me, I'd much rather please God. And that ought to be our motivation. In order to further explain my point here, let's take a closer look at verse 5, because here Paul declares, For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Now that word flattery, it's translated from a Greek word which speaks of the sugar-coated compliments that charming people use you know, to go Dale Carnegie on us as they attempt to win friends and influence people. 
Listen, Paul didn't use syrupy, sugar-coated compliments in order to manipulate the minds of unbelievers. He wasn't presenting the people with a phony facade designed to deceive. Let's consider again the way that the scholars who created the New Living Translation render verse 5. Here's how they put it. Never once did we try to win you with flattery, as you well know. And God is our witness that we were not pretending to be your friends just to get your money. Paul and his companions weren't trying to charm them with sugar-coated compliments. They, They weren't putting on a show by pretending to care for the people that they were attempting to reach. And he tells them, we didn't try to win you with flattery. And then he says, as you well know. Yeah, they knew that Paul didn't come up into Thessalonica and just try to charm people into the church. And there are evangelists who uh, use this approach. You know, they try to be so charming that they can talk people into saying some sort of sinner's prayer, whatever that is. Listen, we we haven't been called to to go out and be charming, which is good news for me because no one's ever accused me of being charming. But, uh, But listen... We aren't here to try to talk people into following Christ. If you can talk someone into the church, someone else can just talk them out of it. If you can charm someone into the church, well, all it takes is someone more charming to come along and say, no, come be a part of my cult. You know, and that's, oh, what do you got here? You know, you you want to go to this other church? Be careful. Be careful when, when we attempt to put flattery in front of faith. Please understand that in Paul's example, they were boldly preaching the gospel of grace as they admonished every unbeliever to repent of their sins. And and with this as our goal, we have to understand that the Lord is the one who entrusts us to reach unbelievers with the gospel of grace. And, And what this means is that we must present powerful admonitions. We must present them with convicting challenges so that they might recognize their sin. Do you understand that there are many people who do not come to Christ because they don't even know what they're being saved from? They, they, they have no, no clue what they're being saved from because in their mind, you know, God is a good and loving God. He'll never send anybody to hell. And so love wins in the end. And so we all go to heaven, Right? And we actually have to help people to understand with powerful admonitions that there's coming a day of judgment when the sins of every unbeliever will be tried by fire. And those who reject Jesus Christ will be punished for every sin they've ever committed. We need to help people to understand how far we've fallen short from the perfect standard of God so that they might want to be saved. With this as the goal, let's consider what Paul says here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Look with me there at verse 5. Here he declares, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Simply put, Paul preached the gospel with power. He wasn't trying to charm people into the church. It it was with powerful admonitions that he challenged sinners about their sin and warned them about the judgment to come. 
And in light of his evangelistic example, I encourage every Christian to realize that the Lord didn't call us to use sugar-coated compliments to charm people into the church, and he doesn't want us to fabricate a phony facade of friendship in order to dupe people into becoming disciples. No, instead, he wants us to present powerful admonitions as we exhort unbelievers to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ so that they might be saved. Now, this brings us to our third point, because listen, exhortative evangelism not only includes truthful assertions and powerful admonitions, but exhortative evangelism should also include familial affections. And to explain what I mean by this, let's turn our attention now back to Paul's example of evangelism found here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I want to direct your attention there beginning at verse 6. Here Paul goes on to declare, Nor did we seek glory from men either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, so affectionately longing for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preached to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now here in these verses we find Paul, he's reminding the original recipients of this epistle about the the affectionate way that they cared for the people there in Thessalonica. uh, Rather than placing themselves upon a pedestal of personal glory, rather than focusing in on their apostolic calling, which, you know, the word apostle there in verse 6, in this context, it, it, it's being used of those who were sent out as missionaries. So we're not talking about the apostles as the twelve, uh, but rather the apostolic calling by which missionaries were sent out to go plant churches. And Paul's sitting here saying, you know, we could have, we, we could have focused in on, on our apostolic calling here, and we could have used our leadership position to manipulate you so that we can, you know, get money out of you guys. And we could have, you know, put, a, put ourselves upon a, a pedestal of personal glory. But then he says, we didn't do those things. We didn't use our apostolic mission as a means of manipulation. No, instead they treated the new believers there in Thessalonica like their own family. As a matter of fact, notice with me again there in verse 7. There Paul declares, we were gentle among you, just as nursing, a nursing mother cherishes her own children, so affectionately longing for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. Now here in these verses, we find Paul, he's comparing his compassion for these new converts there in Thessalonica to the affection that a nursing mother feels for her newborn baby. And just to be clear, you know, the phrase affectionately longing for, it's translated from a Greek word which was used to describe the strong feelings of love which are intensified by an inner immaterial attachment that leads us to develop a strong emotional connection with those we cherish. I like the way that the scholars who created the New American Standard Bible render verses 7 and 8. Here's how they put it. 
We proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children in the same way we had a fond affection for you and were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. Much like a loving mother who imparts her life for the sake of her kids, Paul was a missionary who realized that it's not enough to simply share the gospel and then walk away. No, instead, he continued to impart the gospel to them. He continued to impart the gospel to them until they were born again. And not only that, but Paul also then nursed these new believers with the pure milk of God's word. In this way, Paul's affection for them was comparable to the familial affection that a mother feels for her newborn baby. At the same time, Paul's affection for them was like a brotherly love, which is experienced by siblings. And to prove my point, look with me again there at verse 9. Here again, Paul declares, For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preached to you the gospel of God. Now here in these verses we find Paul, he's referring to the Christians there in Thessalonica as his siblings. As a matter of fact, that word brethren found there in verse 9, uh, it's actually translated from a Greek word which was used of those who came from the same womb. That's literally what the, the Greek word means. Those who came from the same womb. Now, the scholars who created the New King James Version, they render the original Greek word as brethren, and I'm like, where are the sisterin at? You know? Well, the scholars who gave us the New Living Translation, they render the beginning of verse 9 in this way, don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters? There's the sisters. So, dear brothers and sisters, they put it. That's, that's, that's one way to render the Greek word rendered brethren in our text today. Brothers and sisters, or you just might say siblings. In light of this, we can see, first of all, that uh, the Greek word is, um, let's say, uh, binary. Yep, it's brothers and sisters. There's not a third option, just so you know. And, And Paul here, he considers these Christians his brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul himself, the older brother here, was a man who was willing to labor and toil night and day so that he might be a blessing to the new believers there in Thessalonica. And, you know, this is a passage I I wish my older brother would have known about because he didn't treat me like this. Night and day he was whooping up on me when I was a kid. But Paul was a good, loving older brother who was willing to work hard so that these new believers might be cared for. He continued to preach the gospel of God so that many more might embrace the spiritual adoption that occurs whenever an unbeliever repents of their sins and places their faith in Jesus Christ. And what this means is that every born-again believer has been adopted into the same everlasting family. I love this. And I like the way that Paul put it in Romans chapter 8. There he declares, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of adoption again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Christian, listen, those of us who have placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
we've become the adopted children of God. How incredible is that? Every born-again believer has become spiritual siblings within the everlasting family of our Heavenly Father. What this also means at the same time is that those who reject Jesus are also rejecting the salvation that results in our spiritual adoption. If you reject Jesus Christ, then you're rejecting your spiritual adoption. And knowing that those who reject the spiritual adoption of our Savior will end up uh, being punished in in the the lake of fire, you know, our, our Heavenly Father calls us to exhort every unbeliever to become the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Christian, it's so important for us to realize that the Lord wants us to become evangelists so that we can lead the lost into the family of God. With this as the goal, let's continue to consider Paul's example, which is found here in our text today. If you would look with me there at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I want to draw your attention there to verse 10. Here again, Paul declares, You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. Now, here in these verses, we find Paul now comparing his affection to a father who's willing to exhort, comfort, and charge the children that he loves. That word exhorted was translated from a Greek word, which uh, is the verb form of the noun that Paul used back in verse 3. It'll help us to remember that that word, it speaks of the admonitions of authoritative counsel. And in light of this definition, we can see here that it was Paul's affection for the new believers there in Thessalonica that led him to admonish them like a loving father who corrects his kids. Not only that, but he also comforted and charged them as a father does his own children. That word comfort, well, it's translated from a Greek word which speaks of encouragement, and so he was encouraging them. And that word charged, well, it's translated from a Greek word which speaks of instruction. And so to sum all of this up, you know, Paul was like an affectionate father who was correcting, encouraging, and instructing his spiritual children. He even elaborated on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15, where he declares, For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. I love that. Paul saw himself as a father, a spiritual father uh, for those that he led to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in order to further grasp Paul's fatherly affection, I want to take a closer look there at verse 12, because here he reveals his goal by declaring that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. From this we can see that Paul He simply wanted the unbelievers there in Thessalonica uh, to to become believers. He wanted the unbelievers to become believers, and then he wanted the believers to walk worthy of the God who has called us into his kingdom and glory. With this as his goal, Paul was compelled by the love of the Lord to, to first lead by example. And you can see back in verse 10 where he says, You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. Paul led by example first as a good, loving father. 
He led by example, and then he turned around and became the affectionate father who wanted to help his spiritual children learn how to walk. Every father here will recognize the joy that comes along with helping your child to learn how to walk. Incredible. And that's what we see here. He's, he's wanting them to walk worthy of God. I can just picture Paul, this spiritual father, helping these new believers to just learn how to walk with the Lord. Paul was compelled by the love of the Lord as he set out to help the Christians in Thessalonica become believers who knew how to walk worthy of this calling. And what is our calling? To go into the world and preach the gospel. That's our commission, to go preach the gospel and make disciples. And Paul wanted them to learn how to walk in this way. Now, now I want you to think about this for a moment, especially if you're a grandparent. Every grandparent here will recognize that one of the greatest moments in their life is when they become grandparents. The, the, the greatest moment in a parent's life is not just when they become parents, but when they become grandparents. And I want to think about that in a Christian context. The believer who is engaging in the spiritual discipline of evangelism will then be thrilled to discover that the person they led to the Lord is now leading other people to the Lord. How incredible to see the person that you led to the Lord and discipled up in Christ and turning around and walking worthy of this calling by becoming a believer who is leading others to the Lord and, and in sort of a sense producing spiritual grandchildren. It's for this reason that much like Paul, I encourage every Christian here at Calvary South Austin to walk worthy of the God who has called us into his own kingdom and glory. With this as the goal, it's important for us to remember that we've been called to become affectionate believers who are leading the lost to the foot of the cross so that they might also become the adopted children of God who will go on to reproduce their own faith in the conversions of others. I like the way that Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 1. There, beginning at verse 15, he declares, Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Here in these verses we find Paul. He's penning this prison letter from, you know, uh, from, from chains. I mean, he's sitting in chains in prison, and yet he's happy to hear that Christians... We're preaching the gospel. And yeah, he heard about some out there preaching the gospel for all the wrong reasons. Whether it's selfish ambition, not sincerely, or from strife, these sorts of things. Yeah, he knows that's happening. And yet he rejoices in knowing that Christ is being preached. At the same time, Paul also encouraged those who were preaching Christ for the right reasons, that they were, that they were preaching out of love. And he was thrilled about this. 
And I believe that Paul would encourage us today to become those Christians who are preaching Christ with the affectionate love of the Lord. Remember, it's the love of God the Father that led him to send his only begotten son to come and suffer, to offer himself a sacrifice for sins so that sinners might be saved. It was his affectionate love for us that led him to provide us a way to be saved. And if you've received that free gift of grace, well, now he's calling you, Christian, to present this love to others in the way that we exhort them to receive the affectionate love of our Heavenly Father by faith in Jesus Christ. With this as the goal, I encourage you to remember that exhortative evangelism, it includes the truthful assertions that we boldly proclaim as we share the gospel message of our Messiah with those who are lost. Exhortative evangelism also includes the powerful admonitions that we present as we challenge unbelievers to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ. And finally, exhortative evangelism includes the familial affections that we feel as we lovingly correct and encourage and instruct those who desperately need the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this way, I believe the Lord will help us to become those believers who are walking worthy of God, who has called us to the Great Commission. We ought to walk worthy of God who has called us to go into the world and preach the gospel. And as we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, he will help us to engage in the spiritual discipline of exhortative evangelism. Let's pray.